Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to invite you to visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org to um, be exposed to a variety of resources on food policy and obesity. We have a free email newsletter that comes out monthly, a number of other resources on food policy and obesity, and of course a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've recorded with visitors to the Rudd Center. I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Derek Yock, who's Vice President of Global Health Policy at PepsiCo. Derek has a very interesting background. Educated, uh, did his medical training in South Africa, uh, came to the United States for training in public health at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. He's been very active in the public health sector and now in the corporate sector. In South Africa, uh, he was an epidemiologist. He established a Center for Epidemiological Research at the South African Medical Research Council and focused there on quantifying inequalities and the impact of urbanization on health and in his academic life co-authored more than 200 scientific papers. He, uh, from South Africa, he was recruited to be in a high position at the World Health Organization, and he was there for a decade, and during that time was instrumental in the, the global policy, the framework convention on tobacco control, and then subsequently uh, the global strategy on diet, nutrition, and physical activity, and accomplished a great deal. Uh, in his work with the World Health Organization. He then came to Yale University where he was on the faculty of the School of Public Health. He went to the Rockefeller Foundation where he was in charge of global health policy and then was recruited to the PepsiCo Corporation where, as I mentioned, he's vice president of global health policy. So he's an unusual um, but, but very um, active player in the field in having come from a public health background and not working for business. So Derek, uh, welcome and glad to have you with the Rudd Center. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. Now, let me start off with uh, the sort of obvious question. Uh, why did you go from the world of public health, the World Health Organization, Yale School of Public Health, Rockefeller Foundation, into the business world? Well, I think the, the, the first uh, reason was that the incoming CEO of PepsiCo, Indra Nui, um, raised with me the fact about a month before she took over that she, her vision for the company was that it should become uh, one of the healthiest food and beverage companies on the planet. And uh, to do that, she needed to have uh, people who shared that vision. And uh, it sounded such a compelling story. Uh, I didn't even think I was being given an option. I think I was being told that I needed to make a career switch. It came at a time when my previous boss, Hot uh, Grohal and Bruntland, who had been the director general of WHO, was actually on the advisory committee to Indra. Um, and she also felt this was a good move. Um, and I saw this as an opportunity to take a lot of the ideas that we developed in the public health sector and see how one could actually apply them through the eyes of a corporation. So I'd like to talk specifically about the work you're doing with PepsiCo and the, the corporate strategy that PepsiCo is, is choosing here. But it would be a shame to have you here and not call on your professional public health background to talk about some of the global challenges regarding nutrition. And I know you've been one of the, the people who's written most extensively about the importance of considering chronic disease from a global health perspective, and in nutrition, particularly how undernutrition and, and overnutrition coexist. How extensive are these problems in your mind? 
You know, I think if you looked at the, the, the daily news items about global health, they tend to be dominated by malaria, AIDS, tuberculosis, which obviously are very important. But they dwarf in comparison to what we're facing in terms of chronic diseases driven by tobacco, unhealthy diets, physical activity, and alcohol. Uh, as I say, the numbers are, are huge. And in every part of the world, with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, chronic diseases dominate as the major cause of death and disability by far. Um, in terms of tobacco, we have um, 5 million deaths a year worldwide, most in the developing parts worlds of the world. And in terms of diet, we face a, a twin crisis, um, a, million, a billion people overweight or obese, and almost a billion people who are hungry or underweight or micronutrient deficient, suggesting that there's been a failure of our ability to think about a nutrition policy and system that addresses nutrition uh, across the board. And the consequences of that are particularly important in the emerging economies, where there's an intimate link between undernutrition in early childhood um, and infancy, and the later development of chronic diseases, diabetes and cardiovascular disease in middle and um, um, middle age uh, f uh, in those, those parts of the world. Um, when we look at the resourcing and the support in terms of academic uh, support, it remains uh, hopefully in, in, woefully inadequate. Um, we're talking about significant orders of magnitude um, of need compared to, say, AIDS, malaria, and TB. And when you look at the data objectively, just think about the fact that PEPFAR, which is the lead international aid development program of the U.S. government, over the next few years will probably put $50 billion um, into the whole arena of AIDS treatment, um, as well as some of the prevention. By comparison, basic nutrition currently gets a few million dollars. Humanitarian relief gets maybe 100 or $200 million dollars and chronic diseases is not even on the radar screen. I know you've presented some interesting statistics from your uh, home country of South Africa about undernutrition and overnutrition. I wondered if you could share those with us. Yes, I think it's a very, it, as, as a country, it's, it, we've always felt it's a microcosm of the world, um, where you have 20% um, of children are stunted or, or underweight, and yet 50% of young women and mothers are overweight or obese. And people ask, well, how can you have that kind of duality uh, in a country? And the, the, the reason really lies in the fact that for poor people, the economic decision to eat a um, nutrient-poor but energy-dense uh, source of food is the most sensible from an economic perspective. And our concern is that during the economic downturn with the increase in food prices, we're seeing people having to trade away from fruit and vegetables to more monotonous maize and bread-based diets, which will continue to fuel the, the epidemic of uh, overweight and obesity. So I'd like to talk about uh, PepsiCo a as a company and its corporate strategy and your work there. Could you give us some sense of how large a company PepsiCo is and the range of products and its global reach? Yes, it's, uh, it's a company with a, um, about $40 billion of, of annual revenue. Um, about 185,000 employees in virtually every country in the world. Um, it has uh, 17 brands in its portfolio, um, which are worth more than a billion dollars. Um, and obviously a wide variety of very local brands that people have not heard of. So the 17 brands, each of which is, is over, worth more than a billion yes. dollars, and then many local ones beyond. Exactly. And, um, you know, in many parts of the world, they'd be really unknown uh, in the U.S. Um, 
The big ones that people do know about are Quaker, Tropicana, Gatorade, Pepsi-Cola itself, um, and of course Lay's, Frito-Lay, and the entire Frito brand, Gamisa, Sabritas in Mexico, um, and a wide range of others. Um, I think if you were to rank it as a, as, a, as a country, it would probably rank in the top 30 GMP per cap, GMP, uh, by GMP size, uh, if it was an economy. So it's large, it's diverse, it values its diversity, it values the, um, the national identity that the company has in every part of the world, and uh, tries to actually build upon the local culture. Now, I, I don't know that this is true, but my own perception is that PepsiCo was one of the first companies to see potential profitability and public health goals coming together and, and seeing improving the product line not only as a good bit part of the business model, but also almost a moral imperative. Does is that, is that truly capture the way the company thinks? Yes, and it was my experience not being in the company to actually see that actually happen. Um, certainly under the previous CEO, Steve Reinerman, um, uh, he, he was responsible uh, for many of the changes that we now have. About a decade ago, um, the current CEO, Indra Nui, had been the chief financial officer, and with him was uh, responsible for the decision to actually buy Gatorade, Quaker, and Tropicana. And within the same time period, uh, sell off Yum brands, which included Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and uh, Taco Bell. Um, and that obviously transformed the company pretty rapidly from being based purely on a classic uh, chips and soda line to having a broader portfolio where the potential to grow the health side increased. Um, when I was at WHO, uh, at a time when I never even dreamed that I'd be joining a food company a few years later, uh, the first two companies to have outreach to us was um, PepsiCo and Unilever. And both expressed a vision that was very difficult for me to understand sitting in a public health agency. And subsequently, I've understood that they were actually both truthful about the direction they want to go, but it takes time to implement it. Now, some of the people who are critics of the food industry say that it faces a fundamental problem when it talks a game, talks a good game about improving public health. And that is, that the industry is there to sell food and sell calories in essence. And so the more people are eating, whatever it happens to be, the better off they are. And some transitions can be made by getting people to move from <laughs> less healthy to more healthy products, but still you want people eating as much as possible if you simply want to maximize profits. How would you respond to, to that voice of the critics? Well, I think it's, it, it raises uh, two questions, two issues. One is that um, I think that, that that view is built on a certain assumption of the type of business models that work and don't work, um, a model based on um, a model of industrialization, of mass production, um, the more you produce in terms of volume, rewarding volume rather than rewarding quality. What we, we think the, the way out of that dilemma, part of it, um, is to start looking at um, how you can increase quality and ensure that the, um, the value that consumers feel for quality is such that they're willing to pay more per unit um, than they would, which would reduce the tensions on the marketers and sellers to focus on vo volume, but rather focusing on selling quality sales and be able to make the same level of profit. Now, I must say that that is certainly the view that m many of us in nutrition, R&D, and inside the company are betting on. But it's not a proven model, and it does highlight the fact that 
we need more substantive work from the business and the management community to really look at how you can make that model work. That's true at the premium end of the market. Um, so in a country like the US, um, future profitability of companies will probably come from more premiumized, uh, more functional benefit being added into products um, and not in terms of supersized products. The good news also on um, the question on, on volume is that you can, you can actually see that reducing portion size, say into a 100 calorie pack, um, will reduce the total volume of food in terms of calories supplied to people at uh, the same level of profitability because the more you put it into, as you start producing smaller pack sizes, uh, the profitability per pack starts going up and the consumer benefits and we believe the public benefits. The challenge on the other side of the spectrum, and remember that we are focusing on also on undernutrition, is that there there's a massive uh, large number of people who simply are not part of the calorie supply. They're not yet entering into the formal food market. And there we have the potential for growth without the adverse effects of chronic diseases to try and get them up to a minimal level of nutrition. And if we balance that across the world, we believe that we could have a portfolio that, that meets the needs of undernutrition and overnutrition simultaneously, um, particularly uh, if we start looking at um, a way in which we see it as a overall unified company approach and not just within each individual brand. You've alluded to um, a number of places in the food system where a company like PepsiCo could potentially have an impact, changing the product line, reformulating the products, packaging, um, because of environmental concerns, potentially, uh, portion sizing, marketing practices, all those things. Are those the main areas where you think a company could have the, the best impact? You know, I think um, we would, we would uh, certainly, those, those are certainly important. But um, unless we actually focus on the product per se um, and uh, two aspects of the product, I don't think we'll make the progress we need. Um, I think that we will... Uh, be able to uh, get to a place where consumers and policymakers will probably be a lot more comfortable with policies on marketing and labeling relatively soon, um, particularly if companies work uh, together as they're starting to do. The real challenge, and I think the real, the, the real opportunity, lies in product transformation and new product development. And that's where we're betting heavily on investing in an R&D capability to both uh, improve the quality of our core products, uh, looking at particularly reducing salt, sugar, and fat without compromising taste, and at the same time bringing online new products that meet uh, dietary guideline expectations that bring greater functionality to people either um, in older age or in particular categories of activity. So a question I have has to do with um, how, what, what kind of taste sensations people have become accustomed to. So you've, you've mentioned that, that if you have a product that doesn't taste good, it could be the healthiest product in the world, but it won't be of much value. And so I wonder sometimes whether people in the United States, but also in other countries around the world, haven't been calibrated to such high levels of sweetness in foods and such high levels of fat and such high levels of salt that the idea that you want to produce um, products that have that retain those sensory properties but are healthier is part of the solution but is another part of the solution just getting people used to lower levels of those things and can we adjust how sweet people think a given food should be or how much salt 
of food should have? I think all of those questions are on the cutting edge of science now. And as you, as you know, we now have had the Nobel Prize going to the area of um, taste and sensory perception. Um, the advances in uh, understanding of how people react to taste is um, taking us deep into the womb and the, the preg- period of pregnancy. I, I commented uh, perhaps facetiously, perhaps not so facetiously, that if we really want to change consumers' taste preferences, we should start by returning them to the womb and uh, doing what you say, recalibrating them. What I find interesting, though, is when we, we, we do taste testing around the world, and um, the U.S. isn't um, ex- exceptional in terms of the desire to have high levels of sweetness. Um, parts of the world um, where traditional forms of sweets and sugars have been very high often have even higher demand. So uh, India being an example, Mexico being another example. Um, and obviously we know that if we dig, dig really deep into our, um, our species, we, we know that we adapted knowing that fruits were the source of sweetness and generally tended to be safe and we adapted to them better than bitterness, which tended to signify some harm or some danger. And that's probably why we have the greater propensity. But has it got out of balance? I certainly think it, it, it has. And the question is how you, how you change that in a way in which you don't have untoward effects. Um, the issue of salt, I think, is a good one to start looking at. Where the, the challenge seems to be how do you lower salt levels systematically across all the product lines where salt is present in a way in which people aren't going to notice the, dif- the difference, yet you're going to have a big impact on hypertension and cardiovascular disease. There have been experiments. Um, I have a, a colleague who headed the cardio- cardiovascular research unit in Isfahan in Iran, and she set out to, first of all, she showed that the vast majority of the sodium was coming from the bakeries and the breads in the city, something like 75 80%. In that setting, uh, it made sense to bring the bakers together and to say, how could you consistently reduce your levels together? And that's what's happened. And the documentation of it afterwards showed a sustained decline in hypertension. In a setting like the US, it's more complex because the sources of sodium are much more diversified. That doesn't mean we shouldn't steer away from it, but it does mean that unless you have a partnership between the various parts of the food industry, food services, the manufacturers, the bakers, the millers, and uh, the, the public health sector and the NGOs, we're not going to make progress. And that, that's tough. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's, I think, and I think it's certainly needed. In the US, for example, there are probably up to 100,000 uh, deaths um, associated in some way with uh, high levels of sodium. Um, anything we could do to reduce it would obviously have a big impact on public health. So you... It, Using salt as an example in the United States, it does raise some interesting challenges, doesn't it, to think about getting so many industry players on the same page with this. And you said it's, it's a challenge but not impossible. Um, how is it not impossible when you could find some companies saying, okay, we'll let all our competitors reduce the salt, but we'll keep ours high and therefore retain that market advantage as long as consumers want more salt? Well, I think we, first of all, I think we're in an interesting era. I mean, I do think that the um, the next few years, there's going to be an opening to recognize that the leadership of government uh, in public health is probably going to be even stronger than it was in the past, as it's going to be in all areas of uh, corporate activity and finance, given the economic crisis that, that we face. So I think that's an opportunity, and I think the food industry knows that. Um, 
the, the, I also find it interesting when I'm in a trade association meeting, the first discussion is around competitive advantage or disadvantage. And if you can do things together in unison uh, and go in the right direction, you're likely to, to win. So the question is how you get everybody around the table. And is it possible? Well, I think in the US we have a couple of examples of success that we can build on. The first is the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, where the Clinton Foundation and the American Heart Association started off by calling industry together and saying to them, how do you reduce the supply of calories going into the school system? It wasn't a debate around who's to blame and what's to be done, but it was a question of how do we set nutrient guidelines for lower school, middle school, and higher school where we can agree on beverage and, and uh, snacks uh, and what needs to go in. It took a while, but uh, the result now after two years is that you've got 50, 55% less calories going into the school system. Um, how did companies respond? I think they had a period during the negotiation phase to respond by reformulating. Um, once the guidelines became clear and started emerging and they realized they were not going to be draconian, but they'd be gradually introduced over time, that's nothing like that to stimulate innovation in the R&D sector, uh, to lower the level of uh, sugar, for example, in the beverages, or to reformulate and bring in new beverages. If you say that uh, certain dairy categories are going to be given a uh, great opportunity to get into a school system under new guidelines, you can be sure the, the industry will put its weight behind innovating to meet the guidelines. And I think that's what I find interesting is that when the guideline process starts and when you get close to agreement, the companies are fantastic at beveraging away and finding a solution that will both be profitable and meet the new guidelines. The biggest problem is the lack often of having clear guidelines. Um, and in the absence of that, you land up often having unfair competition and you have... Uh, a need, needless uh, unhealthy debate between the private and public sector. One thing that <clears throat> there may not be a good answer for this question, but I'm curious about your response anyway. Sometimes when food companies reformulate products and make them healthier, they, they let consumers know, sometimes in a very visible way. So, for example, well, a perfect example would be Frito-Lay taking the trans fats out of its snack food products. Um, and and I'll, I'll hasten to say that that happened really before public opinion demanded it or there was any sort of government regulation. I give PepsiCo uh, credit for making that change fairly early and setting a standard for that part of the industry. But in that case, you let consumers know no trans fat was put on the bags and things. I understand there have been other cases, for example, some of the major companies reducing gradually reducing salt in their soups but not telling customers about it, just doing it. And I assume that there will be t places where customers hearing that it's been changed to become healthy will think it's less tasty. In other areas, they may not believe that. So how do you think those decisions will be made about when these are silent changes or public changes? I think, first of all, the basis for the changes needs to be agreed. Uh, there needs to be a basis for it. And in the U.S., the, the U.S. dietary guidelines and the reformulated ones that are going to happen I think provide at least the scientific rationale for where you should head. Um, I think the, the, you're absolutely right, and there, there are interesting examples even on the trans fat side. In the US, there was a lot of public discourse about the importance of trans fats, so consumers were aware that it wasn't something desirable to have in foods. So when they took it out, um, there, was going, there was actually support and continued support for the products. But there are parts of the world where when we actually tell them we're taking trans fats out, and they're unaware about 
what they were doing there in the first place or their harm, they think something which they should have had in their food is being taken away from them and they may very well turn away from the product. The same happens with some of the salt reductions. Often when you label uh, reduced salt, you drive people away because they assume that the product is going to taste dreadful and they don't even give it a taste test, yet most of the time they're able to adjust it. I think when you actually uh, tell the public openly and when you don't is, I don't think there are any hard and fast rules. Um, it certainly does require detailed consumer insight. But what it also requires is a stronger partnership between public health authorities carrying out a strong message and the private sector making sure they're in sync. So the cholesterol awareness debate had a big impact on transforming people away from certain types of dairy products. We need to think about the same kind of public-led discourse around whether it's calories or salt or sugar um, that precedes and covers the companies while they start making the changes. Uh, we've been talking thus far mainly about things that can be taken out of foods to make them healthier, but of course one can also add things to foods to make them healthier. Could you explain the concept of functional foods and some things uh, PepsiCo is doing in this area? I think there are range, a range of approaches. And let's just say what, what has been the classical or approach till now. Um, I think it would be true to say that if the decision on what to add is led from marketing, um, it'll really be based upon a taste preference or picking up on what is in the popular media. So antioxidants become the next big thing, so everybody adds antioxidants. Acai got discovered in Brazil. Everybody wants to stick acai berries and because of the antioxidant flavors. And that will probably continue, and there will probably be, um, I would imagine, many companies will continue down that line, probably including ourselves. But we see the big opportunity to say, how do you add functionality well, we define functionality in terms of uh, improved efficacy based upon uh, real clinical and epidemiological studies, that there really are health, behavioral, mental health, physical health, and mortality impacts. Um, and we should be able to stand behind those kind of claims. Um, we believe very strongly that um, at the moment, many of the um, nutrition problems are being addressed mainly from a medicated uh, approach rather than a food-based approach. And um, that leads us into the whole focus on sub food supplements and so on. So when we look Explain at what... Explain what that means. It's a very interesting concept about food as medicine and food as pieces rather than food as food. Explain more about what yeah. you mean by that. Well, we know that we, had, we have the option to say, are we going to look for the bioactive, which could either be delivered in a pill or it could be stuck into a food product and would add functionality. That'll probably be part of any portfolio that a food company has, but we believe it misses the real point that there are very complex interactions between foods and between the bioactivity of foods that when you take them out of their true substrate um, actually disappear. Um, one of the examples is the link between tomatoes effects and olive oil. Putting them together, you have a big impact. Putting them separately, you don't. Out of Ayurvedic medicine, we know that there are a combination of herbs and spices that together appear to have a rejuvenative effect or a health effect. You put them in separately and just sprinkle them on, they're probably not going to have the effect. There are some nutrients where we know we have an absolute lack, and those can be addressed through fortification, the classical iron fortification and so on. But not too many of those. And in the U.S., where you don't have a scurvy problem, you certainly there is an iron deficiency problem among kids who are overweight, there probably is a vitamin D deficiency problem. 
But aside from some very specific deficiencies, um, those are not uh, deficiency problems. The question is how you enhance performance. And that's where we also think we have an opportunity. And if you're going to look in the area of uh, enhancing your ability to have better energy or muscle mass with aging or promote cognitive function, we believe we should have the same rigor of research that we would do uh, in a pharmaceutical uh, background, except that the end result would not be a pill. It would be a, a formulation of food, which probably includes a wide range of bioactives that would then be sold making a claim of, of improved uh, functionality. Well, that provides a company like PepsiCo with a real challenge, doesn't it? Because you're talking on one hand about having real foods eaten in real food combinations providing health benefits, but then you have a company like PepsiCo mainly processing foods and you know providing this nutrient in this food and that nutrient in that food. How can those two be reconciled? I think that the word processed, you know, has, has had a bit of a bad time. Um, and I think there, there's one thing to go and to take a range of agricultural products, chop them up, make sure that they are fried out of sight to destroy every active, bioactive product in it, and then uh, chopped up and put into a form that doesn't resemble the original product and sent out to the consumers. That's been a, a model um, of the snack industry for many years. Whereas now what we're saying was with, there are new technology options to, to think about how you might process. The value of processing food, we think, will continue to be critical for a number of reasons. Number one, convenience. Time is one of the um, most important things that we can actually meet, cutting people's time. Second is food safety and food quality. Um, and in this complex world, we can actually control food safety through a, a processed uh, approach. So the question is, how do you process food and maintain or even enhance naturalness and functionality? And we believe there are many technology options. For example, moving from frying to baking to microwaving is uh, one of the ways. Uh, taking out all of the artificial ingredients and products that get added as preservatives to thinking about what are the natural equivalents that you could be putting in place. And again, there are a whole range of options. Um, Taken overall, I think that what you will see over the next few decades is a continued push to reduce um, long words from packs, which tend to be chemical compounds, often unnatural or artificial, towards more uh, natural ingredients being included. And the actual form of the product that's going to come out, yes, it may be processed to preserve it uh, in different ways, but it'll actually be based upon natural ingredients. And I think that's one of the ways that you get over the dilemma. So it would more closely resemble the original food that it was exactly. derived from. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, a lot of people that are concerned about the modern food supply will say things like buy things with fewer ingredients and buy things with ingredients that wouldn't scare your grandmother. And so you're talking about doing just that. Exactly. And, I mean, for us, the reason, one of the reasons we're doing it, there are a range of reasons. Our marketers would say that their consumer insights people say that that is an unstoppable trend. People do not want to see these long, long lists of things. Whether or not they are really proven to be risky is no longer the issue. The issue is whether there's a perception that there are things they don't want to actually eat. And we suspect that will continue to be a trend. The second uh, reason we'll continue seeing it is because we know that um, it's doable. So um, some of the extremes is if you take Walker's chips in the UK, 
When they started doing surveys, they found that a large proportion of the British population uh, did not believe that there was a potato uh, lurking behind a chip. They thought the potatoes were made of some other artificial substance. And so we've had to introduce the fact that most of our products actually come from simple agricultural products, um, the chips being potatoes, some oil, if they're going to be fried, otherwise they're going to be baked, and salt. And then you get into the salt debate and they say, well, they must be the, most, the biggest source of salt in your diet without then looking at the science that the salt is now embedded on the outer surface of a crisp, allowing us to lower dramatically the levels of salt, meaning that salt out of chips is a major, a minor, very minor source of salt in the diet, yet the perception to taste is still very high. And these changes, I think, are starting to find their way through. And we think that a relink to the agricultural roots in many of our products will help consumers understand that the degree of processing is nowhere near where they believe it is. And second of all, it also heightens the link between the, um, the farm uh, to the fork uh, distance, which is becoming, again, something many people are very concerned about. So I've heard you in characterizing the core PepsiCo business saying that PepsiCo really only owns one meal, and that's breakfast with Tropicana and Quaker and maybe some other companies that contribute there. But mainly it's a company that sells snacks and things that are people are eating between meals. Um, how do you address the argument that snacking is part of the problem, leading to issues like obesity, that snacking itself is a problem? Well, I think it's something you know we look at all the time. And uh, as I said, I mean, I think our desire would be to say, how can you take the capabilities of a company which um, has got a heavy snack footprint and, first of all, address some of the ingredient issues? Uh, if people are going to snack, at least if you drop salt, sugar, and fat on every occasion, you're going to make progress. If you drop portion size, you're going to make progress. Um, many of us were, were interested when you go back into the roots of the company and you even look at uh, Lay's. Lay's were first um, introduced as a, as a complement to a lunch, as part of a lunch meal. And, and then increasingly they got pushed out into every possible occasion that you can have. Uh, returning to an era of when they were simply used at lunch is probably going to be tough. Um, but I think the vision we have is that could we find new meal options that really um, are nutritious and redefine the whole debate around snacking. I think it's going to be a big debate we'll have over the next while. There have been scientists out there who've made the claim the benefits of snacking, keeping up your blood glucose across the whole day. The others have shown this is a disaster, pushing the total calorie uh, consumption. We look around the world and we realize that um, there is no one simple picture of what has been historically a snacking culture. Uh, what One thing we do know is that it's in a relatively few number of countries that snacking is associated with a crispy, crunchy thing. In many parts of the world, there are a wide range of fruits and nuts and other products that have been used as their snacks, generally healthier. Well, if I think about, um, just to push this issue a bit further, if I think about my own childhood, basically we ate three meals a day, and there may have been a snack when you came home from school between then and when you had dinner, but that was about it. And now people have been trained, at least from what I see, to believe that you can be eating 24 hours a day. And so the fast food restaurants are open 24 hours a day. You have Taco Bell uh, with a fourth meal campaign telling people that they should you know, not have that late at night meal, not just a snack, but it should be a whole meal. 
Um, you have companies like Frito-Lay, for example, putting some of the snack foods in round bottle-shaped containers that will fit inside a cup holder in an automobile. So basically there's no place or time of day where people believe they shouldn't be eating. And so do you think there's a way to continue to sell the type of foods that a company like PepsiCo does, but shrink the concept of how often people should be eating? I, I do, and I think that's probably where we're heading. And I think it raises the bigger question that um, we really have a debate at the public policy area about um, the, the right positioning, quantity, and so on around, around things like snacking. And um, I think that if we did have discussion, we would probably find, again, that the food companies would, they would find a way to innovate out of the problem in the same way as we might be currently in the problem. It's a very interesting dilemma to face. So let's talk um, some about where you see PepsiCo going and some of the advances that you see the company making uh, in line with this commitment to public health. I'd say uh, I think one has to distinguish different parts of the world. Um, the U.S. is um, pretty saturated in terms of all foods and beverages. I think the focus here will continue to be on improving the core, uh, trying to reduce uh, some of the, some of the uh, salt, sugar, fat issues. I think we will see an increasing push down on portion size. Um, I think that what we'll start seeing is um, competitive functionality appearing. So products that really are going to survive are going to have to demonstrate that they have a real impact and they're going to do that without contributing even further to the obesity epidemic. I think there'll be continued pressure and greater pressure over time um, to do many of the things that'll expressly reduce the obesity epidemic. And um, for us, the supply of calories into the system and portion size are two pretty big ones uh, and taken conjunction with calorie transparency. In many of the other parts of the world, one of the biggest challenges we face is uh, not repeating the path of um, how we've got to the current consumption levels in the US with the same product portfolio. Um, and I, th I think what we're finding is many of the assumptions that health is not an important driver and interest in developing countries is simply not true. One of the fastest growing beverages in Brazil, for example, is a, a water-based product um, which would meet all the health criteria we want. Um, how can we actually accelerate that process of putting our healthiest portfolios out earlier into the developing countries where the per capita consumption of many of the classic snacks and beverages are still relatively low? We want to do that before they get into um, very high levels. And simultaneously, in many of those countries, we see the opportunity to work in the poorer groups to meet some basic nutritional needs, and that raises additional challenges around our business model because we're not a company that has historically worked in that space, yet we believe it's one that we could make a real difference. How important do you believe it is to distinguish scientifically proven benefit from perceived or marketed benefit? So, for example, now the energy drinks are a very important, I don't know how big a part they are of the beverage portfolio, I'm assuming they're not that big in total, but they're certainly a growing part of it. Mm -hmm. And now there's so many of these energy drinks that are marketed with astounding levels of caffeine. A lot of them are high in sugar as well. And my guess is that there's really no scientific benefit to those or public health benefit to consuming those kind of drinks. But there certainly is perceived benefit on the part of consumers. 
So how does a company address that issue when you've got a marketable perceived benefit from something where there really may be no health benefit at all or, in fact, some health negative health consequences perhaps? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's 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 obviously a, a, a tough issue um, when you have different drivers inside industry. So you have um, marketing and sales. Obviously, we've got to continue making sure they they sell what is was out there. And as you say, the energy drink market has taken off in many recent years. Most aren't science based. Um, you know, the original formulation of Gatorade was actually based upon solid science, the same equivalent science that actually got us oral rehydration, interestingly. And uh, as Gatorade itself transforms, you'll see a return to um, a type of uh, energy product that'll start increasing functionality. I don't have, a, have an easy answer about how you address that, but just to say that we would hope that in time, um, science eventually will displace anecdote. Um, it's very difficult in the food area because once some of you takes hold, it doesn't matter what the best will of the scientists are, it's very difficult to displace it. But I think um, if we start having concerted uh, messages and we've got products that have got competitive advantages, it'll actually happen. One thing that you mentioned earlier I think might be a partial safeguard against this sort of thing is uh, tight communication between industry and the public health community. Then if that kind of discussion takes place, and it's a legitimate discussion, then industry might be alert to, to selling things that have market potential but may not be so good for people. No, that's, <coughs> you're dead right. And I think one of, the, one of the transformations happening as we step up our R&D effort is both to encourage our scientists to interact with the public health and the scientific community more and also to publish. Um, uh, there's, I think there's been a historical reluctance inside industry because of fear of proprietary, giving up some proprietary information, or they may be giving something into the public health domain that would later come back to kick you because of litigation. Um, I think our view now is to say, let's rather turn that around and say the best uh, guarantee of making progress is, is transparency in science. And if we are struggling with some issues around formulation or lowering sugar or changing uh, some energy drinks, the best way of resolving it is to go and have an open discussion with our colleagues in the, in the health community and see what their views are um, and resolve it as you would any other legitimate scientific issue. Um, and the early discussions we've had suggest that the gains are going to be huge if we do that, um, but it will take time to establish a climate of trust where you can actually have a free exchange of views among the scientists you really want to ex- engage with. One thing I've admired about you, Derek, over the years is your global perspective. And, of course, it comes from all the work you've done around the world. But just in in my interactions with you, it's hard for a conversation to go by without you pounding the table in a polite way and saying you really have to think about the global aspects of this. So when it comes to um, positive changes that a company like PepsiCo is making, so let's say the, the Alliance for Healthier Generation pledge that the food companies made, including PepsiCo, to market less in schools. Does that have a global, con- how, how does what that's seen in the global context? So, for example, it applies to the U.S., but does it apply to Ireland? Does it apply to Dubai? Does it apply to India? And how do you think those issues through? Yeah, I think that is, that is a, a critical issue. I think increasingly uh, we are judged, interestingly, in the U.S. by U.S. consumers by our performance globally as well in terms of many of these issues. Uh, so there's actually a direct reason to be doing it. 
But I think also um, our, our CEO and I think our senior executive team, the whole executive team, live in a globalized world and they know the reality of interconnectedness. That's why um, the recent uh, letter just a few months ago when eight CEOs, um, including Indra, um, sent a formal letter to the head of WHO outlining five specific commitments um, over the next five years that we would make to support work on diet and physical activity, particularly related to both overnutrition and undernutrition. Um, those are really the, counter, the counterpoint now for the alliance activity in the U.S. And we would see over time, hopefully sooner rather than later, that all the best practices we carry out in any developed country will increasingly become the norm in almost all countries. Um, and in the letter, the commitment related to marketing did mention schools, labeling and common approaches, a product reformulation, particularly in relation to trans fats and salt, undernutrition, physical activity, um, and some of the partnership issues. We now have a process in place within those eight companies which involves them spending time, resources, and people to say, how do we make these real? How do we take these three or four line commitments and turn them into real action plans? Now, those action plans have implications across the thousands and thousands of product lines that we have between us worldwide. So it's not going to happen overnight. But the fact that eight major food companies agreed um, was exceptional in terms of public health. And having been at WHO for a decade, I can say we never saw anything like this coming out of other corporate sectors, be it the pharmaceutical or the medical devices or other areas, giving, putting in writing, basically drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is our commitment. And we know that this is alerting the NGO world to start judging us by our progress. And we have already started opening the lines with WHO about how you set the metrics to ensure we do what we say we're going to do. I know this is not the easiest thing to do, but you, you're right at the forefront of not only what the food industry is, but what it will become. If you could project ahead five years, 10 years, I know it's hard to do because it changes almost by the day, but how do you think the food environment will be different than it is now? I think that the, the, the demand and the desire for, for natural, for local, for environmentally sustainable is going to push us to do a range of things. First, I think that um, the products will have less artificial anything in them. They will look more like the source products from which they come. Um, they will probably be sourced more locally. We will see a lot more local processing happening. Um, I think that true functionality will starting to be, to be added in ways that we can't even begin to anticipate. Um, I would hope that uh, the calorie supply around the world will be looked at as a resource in a way in which, and, and, and managed in a way in which we manage carbon. Uh, so those parts of the world that have greatest need in terms of food and calories and whatever, actually we find a business model to meet that need while we obviously continue to meet the needs of the premium consumers in the developed world. And all of that is going to require obviously a greater relationship that exists between uh, food uh, agriculture, environment, and the public and private sector uh, to make it happen. Thank you. Well, we look forward to seeing whether that all comes true. But it sounds like a very positive future if, in fact, those all come to pass. Our guest today is Dr. Derek Yock, Vice President of Global Health Policy at PepsiCo. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks, Kelly. And uh, as I let off the podcast by saying, I welcome you to join uh, to join us on other podcasts by visiting our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, for a list of our guests and for a list of other resources that the Rudd Center has to offer. Thank you. www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of our guests and for a list of other resources that the Rudd Center has to offer. Thank you.